1: holding pocket
2: Welcome to the first episode of Series 3 of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies.
1: Hello, Kat. It's
2: great to be back in this new series, feeling all new and fresh. Such a long break and everything. I
1: know. And also, Kat, we have a bit of a duty between us, you know, in the four days we've had off or whatever, to regroup because Richard's had a bit of a storming 20 episodes and we, we have to reverse the trend. So, Richard, we are, Kat and I,
3: are losers. I don't like to think of it in terms of winners and losers. I think merely participating is a victory for us all. And if I've forgotten the details, if it should have been me who cleaned up in the last season and indeed over the, <laughs> the previous season too as an aggregate, it's mere chaff. Let us forget about it and move on.
2: OK, so... We didn't actually present our topics last week, but we were given them anyway, so let's just surprise our listeners this time around. Now, I believe I'm going to be starting this week, and what seems like quite a nice, appropriate topic today, because it's actually a really nice and sunny and summery day again. And my topic is one that was suggested by one of our listeners, and it's going to be on Lido's. So outdoor public swimming pools and actually i'm quite excited about this i was really enjoying learning about them because there is one opening near where i live in bath and that's the cleveland pool, so cleveland lido which is actually the oldest one still surviving in the country that's been completely refurbished and opening up again so they're having a bit of a sort of resurgence these lidos. But they are actually they've got a really quite nice and interesting history. The actual name is from the Italian word meaning sort of beach shore or shore, and we don't quite know how it came to be used in England. It's possible that it was actually the island of Lido in Venice. People coming from even Grand Tours. Remember you talked about the Grand Tour at Charleston going back and that that had something to do with it. But in the 1920s and 30s, these outdoor baths were really, really taking off. But that first one is really interesting, I think, that 1815 one in Bath, because up to that point, bathing was becoming much more popular. So going back to the sort of 17th century people start to take bathing seriously, and the medical communities are seeing the benefits of it, and you've got purpose-built establishments being made as well, but they're more sort of spa-type things, so definitely not outdoor pools as such, but the health benefits of bathing are being discovered, really. And local spas in, in different areas, obviously in Bath, the spa waters in Bath have been used for a very, very long time, really. And people were swimming in rivers as well, men mainly. Nude river swimming was very, very popular among men. But then safety becomes a big concern, and this is part of their issue. And in fact, when the Cleveland outdoor pools were built in Bath, there was an act, the Bathwick Water Act, prohibited nude bathing in the river partially because of that. So people were instead finding these little pools, these things called marl pits, which were from digging out marl, which were sort of Water filled holes left behind after that had been excavated. And again, not very clean, not very safe. So, the first really quite revolutionary pool like that, that was being uh, fed by the river, so you have river bathing, you've got a sort of private place, uh, was really quite unusual. But then this doesn't really take off until after the First World War when outdoor pools start to be built in full force all over the country. And it comes at a time when swimming as a sport was becoming more and more popular. And at this point, swimming I among mean women as well was being popularised. And you have the first woman swimming across the Channel in the 1920s. And swimming costumes for women uh, being developed. Because, of course, before they weren't really very appropriate for actual uh, sports or sort of sporting use. So they're kind of more what we think of as a swimming costume is being presented as what changes it from bathing to swimming. And then these outdoor pools really, really hit the ground, as it were. And all over the country, you end up with about 300 of them, usually in seaside towns. And what is really interesting is that they are in these resort towns. So councils start to realise that this is what people want. So to attract people to their seaside reports, you actually have to have a lido. And these have usually cafes, they've got a sort of places you can go for refreshments, and they become really sort of social hubs. There's a lot of investment in them as well and in the architecture. So some of them are really quite special so if you have something like, for example, the Blackpool leader that opened in 1923, they spent £75,000 on it, which in today's money is about £3 million. It was 116 by 53 metres long, which is wider than a modern Olympic swimming pool. Diving boards, it could fit 1,500 bathers and 8,000 spectators. So these are really, really grand scale. But it's a little bit odd that they were all in these towns where you could actually go swimming technically they're right on the seaside and I don't know if you remember Richard anything about that when you were researching seaside and swimming well
3: it was all very weird was it because it had bathing machines didn't they so people would be pushed gingerly into the sea and then people would dip their toes nervously into the saline waters lest they were overcome by its kind of briny enchantment it was all rather delicate and dainty
2: precisely but this time sort of after the first world war they had pretty much stop being used but they were turning them and I, I remember you were talking about this actually turning them into their beach huts but even in the 20s there were still lots of restrictions so you couldn't actually just go and swim in the sea as much as you wanted to you had to pay and part of that was about the changing and, and the sort of modesty aspect of it so you weren't allowed to just go freely onto it so you had to pay to go and pay to use one of these huts to get changed and in fact People try to get around that by doing something called Macintosh swimming. Have you come across Macintosh swimming before?
1: No. It's a new one, I think.
2: It was just the practice of getting changed in your seaside hotel, which was usually just across the road, because you weren't allowed to get changed on the beach unless you were in one of these huts. So you would get changed into your bathing costume, and then you put a Macintosh on, run across the road... And then you could throw that onto the beach and then go swimming. So that was a concept. But technically, a lot of places that wasn't even allowed, it wasn't legal, you could essentially get fined for Macintosh bathing. That's how, uh, how restricted it was. So the idea of swimming as we think of it being a sort of free open exercise was just not happening in the 20s and that's i think partially why these really took off in the seaside locations as well and you didn't have to worry about water quality apparently councils had lots of restrictions if the weather was too bad you weren't allowed to swim on the beach so all of this just really led to the leader properly taking off in the 20s and 30s and some of them had these really exotic designs, so they were looking like ocean liners, anything exotic to do with travel. And it was also a time when sport and health and exercise was really taking off. And of course, they were mixed as well, so people could, could mix together, bathe together, swim together. Sunbathing was kicking off, so it was all perfect breeding ground for it.
1: So I'm slightly confused on this, cat. So Alido, does it have to be on the coast or not?
2: So... Technically, the term seems to mean open air usually by the pools. It doesn't have to be. The term, we don't really quite know where it comes in. I think one of the first ones that was officially called a Lido was in the 20s. So there are others that are inland. So it's not a sort of requisite, but it was one of those places because people would come to the seaside, but they didn't necessarily want to swim. They were building them. The councils were investing a lot of money in making them.
3: There's a lovely Lido at Beckles, which is an unusual place to have one. But there was a bathing spot on the River Waveney and they sort of built the Lido around that. And actually also in Burton Lassam, a little town in Northamptonshire where they make Weetabix. There was a Lido there in the 1930s. My dad used to swim in it um, again. And it was on a, a bit of the River Eyes, which was used as a bathing spot. But it was later commandeered by the, for the war effort and turned into a water tank for Alumask, I think it was.
2: Yeah, so that was the sort of start of them. But then after the Second World War, very few new ones were being built, and they were gradually becoming less and less used, falling into disrepair. And in the 1960s and 70s, actually, there were quite a lot of reports and and public national guidelines about recreation, about sports, about leisure, that were actually quite against outdoor swimming. So there was a report even that said that with a mandate saying as a general rule, pools should be indoors. So this idea of outdoor swimming suddenly wasn't seen as acceptable anymore. So it's a real shame because so many of them just disappeared. Um, but quite recently, in the last sort of 10 years or so, there's been a bit of a resurgence. So lots are now getting funding and being rebuilt.
3: Doesn't it seem old, Kat, that it did fall out of fashion because you'd think it was an amenity that once discovered people would really want to hold on to?
2: Absolutely. And they were so popular, sort of social places as well. So I didn't quite understand why. But obviously, now we're seeing them. I was just trying to book, actually, at the weekend for the opening day of the Cleveland Pools next weekend. And it was booked within minutes. It was completely impossible to get tickets because it's so popular. So it's obviously something that people do like now.
1: I think that's wonderful. I think it's something I would go to. You take your family and it sounds quite safe, too. I think Alido sounds a little bit more controlled, a little more family-orientated. And now naked male swimming is a thing of the past. I think it's something that would be very welcome. Well, it's not entirely a thing of the past, Charles.
3: As you know, in North Norfolk, there are opportunities if you do wish to swim naked, or in fact to sport yourself naked, as nature intended, along the beach there. You're free to do so, for there is a naturist area where I once bumped into an archdeacon of my acquaintance, a moment that I will not forget quickly.
2: Richard, can I just ask, would you still wear a dog collar if you're on a nudist beach?
3: Well, you certainly don't actually, Cat, because, well, it would just look so bizarre. I was, I did recognise the Archdeacon because he happened to be my Archdeacon and it was difficult to gaze at him levelly at Deanery Chapter thereafter. We don't need any more detail on that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so do you want to hear my favourite fact out of all of this?
1: Yes, please. Yes, please.
2: So I was trying to find, obviously, you know, I was trying to go back to the origins of the earliest. I found the oldest one in England, but I wanted to look at earlier outdoor pools, and I did find some Roman examples, but I then found that what seems to be the world's oldest outdoor pool is from what is now Pakistan, so from the Harappan civilization in the town of Mohenjo-daro, so this goes back 5,000 years, and this is really quite large outdoor pool, steps going into it, so it's clearly not just a water tank, it clearly is being used for going into and we don't quite know if it was just for a sort of leisure bathing or for sort of hygiene or if as lots of the archaeologists think it's for religious purposes and baptismy type Things, but I really like the idea of people going for a leisurely swim 5,000 years ago.
3: This sounds very swanky, but actually, I've been there actually, cat Well, you'll know the archaeology there. There's loads and loads of pools and cisterns which you think must have some sort of religious function, some sort of sacred lustration thing to them, but clearly people were kind of splashing around and having a lovely old time 5,000 years ago.
2: Why
4: wouldn't they? And I think our disembodied voice has something to comment on here. Yeah, so Kat, you mentioned the Cleveland pools in Bath, and I have quite a nice fact I thought you might all be interested in. So the Bath superintendent, around 1860, he was a man called William Evans, though he went by captain, he actually wasn't one, he had a pet baboon with him round the pool, and he used to perform diving stunts wearing a top hat.
3: Can I tell you what I'm interested in? Fellow rabbit hole detectives, the familiar kind of rasping, wheezy asthmatic tones of our disembodied voice (laughs) seem to have undergone something of an upgrade, if I can put it that way. We have a new disembodied voice coming from somebody different. This is a bit exciting, isn't it? it's quite a change, isn't it? I think it's fantastic.
1: I mean, we we love the old disembodied voice, but we welcome the new one.
2: And I think especially, not that it matters, as we know, but seeing as this is who decides to score us, I think this might herald some new changes. Who knows?
3: Well, I mean, I think the last disembodied voice very capricious, very unpredictable, you know, very sort of biased, I thought at first. But as he got into the role, I felt he became more Solomonic, more judicious, his judgments more reliable. So I don't know, and a part of me feels a little fondly about him. Sorry to see him go, but I'm sure the new disembodied voice will show equal discrimination and judgement. <laughs> That's so oleaginous.
1: Gosh, I hope she doesn't fall for it.
2: On that note, let's move on to the next topic. So, next up this time is Charles. And you have been researching the prohibition in the US.
1: Yes, I didn't really know much about this cat. So, it's been a fascinating barrel load of different stories. And it reminds me a bit the whole prohibition. Disaster. I think we can call it that as a, as a social experiment, was a disaster. It reminds me of the very first episode we did of this when we talked about the Chinese obliteration of the sparrows, which led to unforeseen disaster with a famine when all of the, the sparrows being dead, the insects took delight in destroying the crops of the Chinese. Because actually, what I was really interested by in, in Prohibition, I, I always thought, gosh, it's just an insane idea and how could they think it would work, this banning of the manufacture sale or consumption of alcohol, which came along in America in 1920 and lasted for 13 years. I was really surprised by that. But it came from a deep-seated need in America for different strands of society to be heard. And particularly there was, in the 1820s and 1830s, a very sincere religious revivalism in America. And it was driven by the Methodists and other Protestant religions with a view to mankind becoming nearer to perfection. So it had a very noble cause in the abolition of slavery and a slightly bonkers one to us, but it made a lot of sense at the time, one of controlling excess alcohol. Because in the 19th century, uh, the average American over the age of 15 was consuming up to 12 gallons of alcohol a year. And there were serious problems, uh, particularly in places where drink proliferated. So saloons were seen as a hotbed of immorality by the pure middle-class churchgoers. They didn't like that at all. There was also a slight bit of xenophobia involved because there was a resentment at the way the Irish immigrants came in. And so people were quite against whiskey, which was very much associated with the Irish. Equally, the Germans brought their beer and the Italians their wine. So there was a sort of general dislike of the different forms of alcohol that were proliferating. But basically from the Midwest, mainly in the state of Ohio, and also to the east in Maine, there was, before Prohibition, quite a strong movement against alcohol. And I was surprised to find that, long before Prohibition came in, there were 27 dry states at different times in America. So when this all came together was under the auspices of two organisations. One was the Anti-Saloon League, which started in the late 1900s, as I mentioned, you know, against places of immorality. And that was really chaperoned and pushed along by people who had a, a deep dislike of the immorality, but also the social impact of alcohol. And this was also the religious aspect too. Alcohol overconsumption was seen as something that attacked marriages and families and the wealth of families as well as their structure. So people sort of coalesced around opposition to alcohol on that basis. And at the same time, there was a concerted political movement by women. It was known as the Women's War Against Alcohol, which pushed it into a sort of pre suffragette way of social mobility and social expression for women. And so in 1920, after much campaigning, the government in America passed the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, which forbade the production and consumption of alcohol. And it brought about, really very quickly, a total disaster. First of all, at the stroke of a pen, the fifth largest industry in America was taken out of the government's hands, with 10% of the national income cut away at the same time. And so that was very bad news. But what was the real bad end of this story was what it led to, which was the growth of organised crime.
3: It does seem such a mad thing. You think of the Constitution of the United States as being this very robust document which enshrines in very careful language elements fundamental to the smooth running of a society, and they do kind of a mad thing, like prohibition. It just seems... one crazy moments of moral craziness that afflicts people from time to time. I mean, the fact, it became an item in the Constitution is just extraordinary to me, as if the, You know, you wouldn't need to have a clairvoyant sense of unintended consequences to realise that this was going to be a very, very bad idea.
1: Well, you're absolutely right, Richard. It was a disaster, pretty much, from the get-go. The government only appointed 1,500 agents to police this policy, so that basically one agent was looking after 75,000 people to see that they weren't drinking. And the criminals stepped in pretty much straight away, importing huge quantities from Canada and Mexico. And also they used two tiny islands off Nova Scotia, which were still French as a a way in. They were importing stuff. And then speedboats were bringing in this contraband. They were bootleggers. This is where the term comes from. And In fact, it had preceded, the bootlegger term had preceded prohibition, but it became what these people were known as. They were bringing in... Uh, smuggled produce, and then they were making sure that people made it in their homes in what they called alky baths, alcohol baths, and gin baths. These were places where people could produce their own very, very rough alcohol in huge quantities and sell it on to middlemen who then circulated it in sort of vaguely drinkable form around America. And people got extremely rich on this, and very violent, too. So organized crime really got stuck in very early on. And by the 1930s, smuggling was bringing in the equivalent of $41 billion a year to the corrupt people who had taken over the business of alcohol. And the most famous figure from this period, of course, is Al Capone, who ran the Chicago outfit and he was making 60 million himself a year. Famously, he was eventually done in by an income tax evaluation in 1932. But it was extraordinarily violent. We reckon that 1,000 bootleggers were murdered in New York City alone. And these people were really looking after their speakeasies or gin joints or blind pigs, as they were known. These places where people met to illegally, illicitly, indulge in alcohol. And it produced all sorts of social consequences, too. I mean, jazz was a popular music before Prohibition, but it proliferated. If you went to the Cotton Club, one of the underground drinking places, you would be listening to Cab Calloway or Duke Ellington, and in other clubs, uh, Louis Armstrong. So it's an extraordinary proliferation at that, even down to really extraordinary things, in my view, an appreciation of Italian food. Because in some of these Italian-run gin joints, The Italian people running it would pair their Italian wines with the food on offer. And people thought, my goodness, this is actually a very civilised way of eating. And they got to know about that. And they also, a new concept came about where uh, men and women would meet illicitly. And the term dating came about as a result of prohibition. That's when you went off without your parents' permission to find a romantic partner. And of course, the Roaring Twenties, the whole concept of the Roaring Twenties, As described by F. Scott Fitzgerald, that comes from this prohibition era too. I mean, it's amazing, Charles,
3: the Frankie goes to Hollywood principle. You know, you might have thought Relax was a record that needed banning. There's an argument for that, of course. But the minute you do ban it, of course, you ensure its success. And it's the same with any sort of prohibition measure, isn't it? If you really want to stimulate public demand for something, make it illegal. There are still dry counties, as you know, in the United States, and some people I know went on a business trip there and arrived at a hotel and found it was a dry county but the receptionist said oh look there's a bar over there because that's the county boundary so they walked across scrubland eventually had to go across a six-lane highway and walk through some more scrub to get to this bar And when they opened the door it was full of people like them dressed in business suits but covered in scrub and dust because they all had to walk across the desert and across the highway too to get there (laughs) for a
1: drink well that's the thing i mean people will not give up drink easily in that one of the main arguments for prohibition was to bring together society and cast out the iniquitous forces that was undermining it. That was a disaster. The murder rate in America went up by a third during the prohibition era. And then the sort of social structure folded. Low-paid policemen were bribed, judges and juries were bought, the Bureau of Federal Agents, even they weren't Incorruptible, There were the untouchables of Elliot Ness, of course, of the famous movie. But, you know, $150 million a year was spent during Prohibition on bribes to police just in New York, they reckon. So really what happened as a result of all this was that Prohibition became unpalatable. And you end up with this, uh, the women who had first applied for it said, no, no, it's all gone wrong, we need to undo Prohibition. But it soldiered on. And in fact, the presidential election 1933 saw the beginning of the end when Herbert Hoover, who had called prohibition a noble motive and something that was an experiment that was noble, was undone by F.D. Roosevelt. And I love the idea with F.D. Roosevelt. Apparently, when he won against Hoover, the first thing he did was make himself a dirty martini. But my favourite fact of all is really quite a jarring one, to be honest, which is the way the American government poisoned at least 10,000 of its own citizens. So you had to have alcohol for paint stripping and other industries. It needed to be around. But the American government decided to stop people using that for their own consumption. They would have to poison it. And they put in all sorts of things, uh, kerosene, nicotine, all sorts of really unpleasant things, even strychnine. And We know that in 1927, when uh, 480,000 gallons of liquor were confiscated in New York alone, when they were tested, nearly all contained poisons. And then equally, the poisoning through the fact that there was no regulation of alcohol. There's this drink that was concocted in 1930 called Ginger Jake. Uh, It was concocted by two men in Boston and they reckon it crippled 50,000 people. It had uh, an agent in it that attacked people's spinal cords, much like the motor neuron disease. And so, in the end, you end up with bad people poisoning, that's less shocking, but the American government choosing to pour poison, knowing it's gonna kill people who drink and that the zealots who were behind this could have put soap in or something that was unpalatable. But there was a belief during Prohibition that if people wanted to deal in the demon drink that they should suffer the consequences fully.
2: Can I just ask one thing, Charles? Do people still think it works? Some people do still think that it was a successful experiment, don't they?
1: Well, I don't think many people do. Richard's quite right. There are dry areas in different states still, but they're all... (laughs) They're all places you can get a drink. I don't think anyone sees it because of the social impact, because of the disaster. You know, the organized crime that we see today, the American mafia was formed by prohibition and has been a curse ever since. And it does make you think, I have no dog in the race with this one, but other things that we prohibit, which vastly enrich very, very bad people. It it does make you think about that too, because I would say that prohibition was an absolute disaster.
3: I'd have loved to have gone to a speakeasy, wouldn't you?
1: I think they sounded such fun. The Cotton Club. So Cotton Club was in Harlem. It was one of many clubs run by owners of all sorts, but with the music being from jazz singers, etc., and people having a really debauched time. And the clubs were ready made for a, an immediate invasion by the federal agents. So you know there were camouflage doors and. Cisterns of wine built into the walls, etc. I mean, very glamorous and dangerous and fun. And you know, at the end of the day, people are just going there for a drink.
3: Well, there's some interesting restrictions on the sale of drink in Nordic countries? I seem to remember in Iceland. Or Finland, you used to have to buy drink from sort of government approved off licenses and there were sale was very limited. Again, there was this kind of sense that a responsible government made it harder for the population to get drunk. But again, it was massively unsuccessful when I visited.
2: Yes, and it's still the case in, I think, all Scandinavian countries, and certainly in Norway, that you can only buy anything stronger than beer from these places called wine monopolies, literally the places that you can buy anything stronger than that. And they've got very restrictive opening hours. They're only in big cities, but it does lead to a hell of a lot of moonshine and homemade alcohol being made, which is not ever a good thing but i think iceland had some restrictions until very very recently that was the worst one i believe up until possibly the 1970s or something like that maybe the disembodied voice can find out and tell us and that
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from start or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Leaves us onto our final topic
2: for this week. And Richard, I think this is something that you're going to really enlighten us on because I don't know anything about this. The fires in Valencia.
3: Yes, the fires in Valencia. We've been talking about prohibition. we've been talking about licence. Both themes come into this discussion. It is, of course, as you know the feast day of St. Rose of Viterbo. I'm sure you're all acknowledging that in your prayers. Um, And if you were to be in Viterbo on this day, you will enjoy the spectacle of the Machina, which is an enormous sculpture, which is carried on the shoulders of 150 people through the streets, lit up by, I think, 30,000 twinkling lights. It's one of the great spectacles of festivals. nothing, nothing, compared to fiestas, Small beans, fiestas. It's a week-long festival, actually it's more than that, almost a 20-day festival in Valencia, that lovely city in Spain. It falls, when well, it culminates on March the 19th, which is the Feast of St Joseph, who is the patron saint of carpenters. And the whole thing began because of carpenters, it is believed. In the olden days, carpenters in Valencia in the winter months used to use these wooden frames called parot. And on them, they would place their candles so they could work. And as spring approached, they were no longer necessary. So they used to make little bonfires of them outside. And then these little bonfires began to get a little bit bigger. And then people started dressing up the parrots in little costumes and putting sort of faces on them and maybe lampooning one or two of their competitors in the trade. And gradually, this got bigger and bigger and bigger. And in the end, the church intervened as it always does. You might well be thinking, and you might well be right, that this represents some pre-Christian festival, right? The burning of the things of winter to welcome the spring, the purging of the community. You might be right. And the church jumped in and allied it, really, to the Feast of St. Joseph, patron of Carpenters. And then it became this really, really big thing. And now it is a huge, huge thing. In 2016, UNESCO declared it to be part of the intangible cultural heritage of the world. Quite right, too. Really, it's a festival of fire and noise. If you have ever been to Valencia at any time of year, you will know that population's fondness for making a bit of a row. It's the noisiest city in Europe, it must be. But in Fias, it's even more extraordinary. Fias is marked by fireworks, by bands, by drumming, by music, by merrymaking. One of the biggest street festivals in the world, one and a half million visitors, they reckon, every year. All sorts of exciting things happen in it. For instance, La Desperta, each day begins at 8. 30, which is incredibly early for Spain, with brass bands going up and down, playing noisy, noisy tunes. There's also a kind of horrible local bagpipe. All local bagpipes sound pretty really horrible, but believe you me, the Valencian bagpipe is particularly shrill and ghastly. Everyone makes them a, a huge noise. Fireworks is a very, very, very big thing indeed. I mean, every day there's a thing. If you're Valencian, you dress up as a fallero or a farayas, and there is a farayas mayor, which is like the queen of the Fayas dressing up in incredibly beautiful traditional costumes, a bit like your is it bunad? I can't remember what you call them in Norway, Kat, but they're that sort of thing. Bunad. I beg your pardon Norwegian national costume, Bunad. It's a similar sort of thing, but it's made of silk and these dresses can cost as much as 20,000 euros, they're extraordinary. And the children are all dressed up in traditional kit too, and they go on this big walk through the town There's this wonderful thing, the offering of flowers. There's an enormous effigy of the Virgin Mary. Well, actually the Virgin of the Dispossessed, who was particular patron of the city, and she's on a huge frame. She stands about, I think it must be at least 30 feet tall, and everyone in traditional costume brings flowers in red and white, and then her dress this framework of wood, is made out of these red and white flowers in incredibly ornate ways. And everybody cries. It's all very, very deeply moving. Well, that's at the sort of more domestic end of the spectrum. At the livelier end of the spectrum, they have this thing called the masclita. And this is an extraordinary thing. Every day during fires, at two o'clock, if you go to the square in front of the city hall, the main square, they have this thing called the masclita. And what this is, it's daytime fireworks. Now, You might think that's a peculiar thing to do. What's the point of a firework that's not by night? You want to see it, right? Well, the masquita is about noise. So you have these people who create these displays of fireworks, but it's a display of noise rather than pyrotechnics, and it is an extraordinary thing. It starts off loud, it gets louder and louder and louder. I've been to it a couple of times, and at one point they have this thing called the earthquake moment. It's the very end of the display when they let off so much gunpowder that the whole earth trembles. And indeed, you have to stand with your mouth open lest you cause damage to your eardrums because the force of the explosions are so intense. It reaches about 120 decibels, which is like standing next to a 747 taking off. Take your earplugs, folks. All this is incidental to the main event. And that is the Faias themselves. The Faias, it's a sort of heap of caricatures and they're these models of people and things. They're called ninot, uh, sort of puppets. Originally it was just these little parrots that were all sort of dressed up to represent people from your community. Now they're huge and elaborate. Some of them are 30 metres high. One of them cost, I think, a million euros to build in 2009, but that was so expensive they said you can't do that anymore. But 100,000 euro would be nothing unusual. And they are usually caricatures of politicians, pop stars, Lady Gaga, Donald Trump, various Spanish politicians of every persuasion. There are also, some of them are quite obscene as well and quite rude and they're enormous and they're built by specialists. So many of them now that there's a whole quarter of the city in the northeast of the city that is dedicated to the construction of the Ninot and the Fayas. And these Fayas are put in place in a great thing called La Planta and then there's this enormous concert on the night of the Fayas itself which is called La Crema, which is on March the 19th. And these huge, huge sculptures that have taken a year to build and hundreds of thousands of euros to build are ignited and set on fire. Charles. I love all this it's so fantastic and please tell me Richard that it
1: hasn't been ruined by tour operators that it still feels like something when you've attended it you've mentioned you've been there a couple of times does it feel like a traditional celebration or has it taken
3: on new clothes to entertain tourists from other places? I mean two answers to that question Charles it remains irredeemably Valencian with a very characteristically Valencian humour to it noisiness to it and also disrespect for authority Franco hated it and did his very best after the Spanish Civil War and during the dictatorship to trim its wings but not always successfully in 1943 one of the leaders of the Comisiones which is one of the people there are about 400 Comisiones each of them creates a fire. So it's a whole big thing a sort have led a very careful judicious resistance to Franco's attempts to limit it. Some people think that the introduction of the Virgin Mary and the, and the procession of flowers was a Francoist thing to try to kind of incorporate it into a Catholic ethno-nationalist thing, but it didn't really work. You can't keep it down. I mean, it's, it is a huge thing. Lots and lots of people go, but it's still very traditional. People wear the clothes. There's food you eat at Fayas. Buñuelos, which are these pumpkin fritters. Hard sell in a way but they're sort of donutty frittery things that you always eat at fires uh, horchata which is a drink made out of tiger nuts it's a sort of well actually rather like an almond milk that we might have today well they were drinking horchata long before that and great street wood fires where they'd have an enormous paella pan and you'd eat paella which is of course a great national well a regional dish of valencia the other thing is that everyone's allowed to set off firecrackers i remember going for the first time and being very startled to have firecrackers thrown at me not only by children but by little old ladies Little old ladies with black scars, the Spanish widows, rather, of yesteryear, would, with a mischievous grin, all of a sudden throw a firecracker at you and make you jump out of your skin. It's a whole, whole big thing. La crema, the burning of the effigies, is the most extraordinary thing of all. And when you see it, you realise that it's something, I think one of the reasons it's endured so much is not just because of the spectacle, but because I think it speaks to something actually quite atavistic in us. And it is this idea about purging, cleansing fire. Why make these objects of satire well I think because perhaps all the sort of frustrations or anxieties that accumulate in any society where people are politically at odds or ideologically divided all that stuff needs some kind of way of earthing and I think the fias permits for for that to be earthed. Well, I remember going to the detonations which happen at two o'clock in the afternoon and thinking it's one of those things it's like the tt race in the isle of man if you started it now you'd never get permission do you know what i mean
1: yes i do and it's so interesting when you were saying about how you deal with that huge volume of decibels because i came across a manual at my old boarding school and it said if the bombs this is from world war ii if the bombs hit the school Sort of stand where you are, but open your mouth in the accustomed way. And it must be this thing. I didn't know before that that's the way
3: to save your eardrums. Well, I think so, because it allows the pressure wave to do less damage to you, I suppose. Is it? Is it but what an extraordinary thing to invite the world to your city... I then just subject them to a sort of torture by noise. It is so noisy, Fires, I can't tell you. I, I know it well because a very close friend of mine lives in Valencia and I go there regularly. And it's a bit like living in Edinburgh, you know, you go to the Edinburgh Festival once, twice, three times, and then on the fourth time actually everyone scarpers and just lets their flats by Airbnb to visitors. Cat.
2: Now and what are the Spanish like with this sort of thing? Are they less dull than many other countries in that they don't try and restrict the noise and restrict the flames and the partying and it seems to be so many places the health and safety takes away all the fun are they still quite happy to just let it blossom?
3: Well I mean the Spanish are very interesting about this sort of thing I mean as members of the European Union they're signed up to a kind of you know the programme that EU members have signed up to about having at least some regard for the health and safety of your citizens but it, in Spain it's done with a sort of brio I suppose for example the burning of the, the fire themselves, the heat is so intense that the fire brigade stand there and hose down the fronts of buildings or shop signs or street signs because the heat is so intense you could literally melt your city if you weren't careful. So, provision is made. You might think it might be a wiser thing is not to ignite enormous bonfires in a walled city, but anyway, they do that. One of my favorite, it's not my favorite fact, but one of my favorite things is that they have worthy themes sometimes, and in the city hall square. They have two large fires there, which sort of represent noble causes. And one year it was climate change and having a low carbon existence, with these two enormous sculptures celebrating that, which were made out of. Well, polystyrene, which they then burnt, which sent choking clouds of black toxic smoke into the air to remind us of our responsibilities to take care of the environment. I mean, I'd highly recommend going. It is an extraordinary experience. But again, it's perhaps something you want to do perhaps only once, once or twice. Would you like to know my favourite fact? Yes, Yes, please. please. It's rather a personal one, but I'll share it with you. My first visit to Valencia, and the reason why I have friends there, was that when I was in the Communards pop band in the 1980s, we were very big in Spain, and we were invited to play at FIAS one year. I think it was the biggest gig we ever did. So you set up, your stages, set up in the square in front of the city hall, and it is absolutely, I mean, literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, and you play this enormous gig, which is the most tremendous fun. Fireworks go off all the time. It's absolutely marvellous. But I remember it particularly because... One of the members of the band, I won't say who, got off with a matador. And I thought that was such a remarkable achievement that I can't think of FIAS without thinking of the extraordinary enterprise of my fellow band member in managing to get off with a matador at FIAS, which seems to be about the most wonderfully Spanish thing anyone could ever do.
1: Brilliant. In a band of two people, you've really narrowed it down, yeah.
2: I have no idea. I can't guess it, so yeah. A
1: tinge of jealousy in that report, so I think we know it wasn't Richard.
3: I can say nothing more except perhaps mm-hmm. olé.
1: And Richard, I have to just step in on behalf of bagpipers everywhere because I used to learn the bagpipes and you were quite generally rude about them, but I think they can be the most beautiful thing. I know around the world they can be a bit more squealy and waily but the Scottish bagpipe I still view as one of the great lyrical and poignant instruments.
3: Well, I really must say I've expressed myself very poorly then because I adore the Highland pipes, perhaps more than any other. But I'm thinking there are lesser pipes, usually played by perhaps shepherds or goat herds in the mountains of some Balkan principality that perhaps don't have quite the same effect. I don't know, I don't want to be rude about other people's bagpipes, but the Valencian bagpipes are a bit shrill.
2: Brilliant. Now, I think that leads us to the exciting moment and we will see just how undemocratic our new disembodied voice is going to be this week.
4: Yes, and just before I announce this week's winner, I know we had a query on alcohol laws in Iceland. So, prohibition in Iceland actually began in 1915, and it lasted all the way until 1989. So it was partially lifted in the 20s when Spain refused to trade with Iceland unless they accepted their wine. And in in the 1930s, the ban on spirits was lifted, but it wasn't until the 80s that Icelanders were allowed to drink beer. So now, on the 1st of March every year, they celebrate beer day to mark the end of Prohibition officially in Iceland. And on to the most important part. So this week's winner, well, I like the idea of jazz, Italian food, and a drink or two. So I'm gonna have to hand it to Charles this week.
1: Clark well, and beat my own prohibition and have a drink to celebrate. Bravo, cheers. Thank you. Thank you. I think I really like this new disembodied voice. Marked improvement.
2: (laughs) Can we all celebrate as well? Can we all have a drink to celebrate? Is that okay? Is that acceptable, Charles?
1: I think it's compulsory. The fias of the rabbit holers begins.
2: Excellent. Well, I'm very pleased to hear that. So that is taking us quite close to the end of this episode. But before we go, we've got some new topics to research for next week, so let's tell our listeners all about them. Richard, you are going to be researching moral panics.
3: Yes, well, it rather ties in neatly, doesn't it, with prohibition, which I suppose in its own way is a moral panic. But you know, periodically, nations, cultures, societies, places are seized by moral panics. So I'm going to talk about that.
2: Excellent. I look forward to that. And Charles, you are going to be looking into the real Macbeth.
1: Yes, I'm very excited about this one too because I came across him while writing a book, and let's just say he's not very close to the sort of henpecked neurotic of Shakespeare's play.
3: Charles, would you like to play the bagpipes as
1: illustrative accompaniment to it? I think it's compulsory, Richard. I'll try and dig up Pipe Major Macdonald, who used to teach me in the early '80s.
2: <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing that, definitely. <laughs> and my topic is going to be something I've been learning quite a lot about over the last three or four years and it's going to be the Winchester mortuary chests.
3: Well I'm interested you say that Cat, because I was gazing on them only a little while ago I was in Winchester Cathedral and I remember saying to the dean what are those chests up there and she said well there are mortuary chests but it's a fascinating story. And
1: I think we had to blow the trumpet of each other's successes when they come along and you know Cat. As we record, she's Book of the Week in the Sunday Times over here. And last week, the week before, she was the Book of the Week in the Times. So, And it hasn't even come out yet. So that's quite an achievement. It goes with Richard's multi-best-selling history. And I'm I'm feeling rather the dunce of the three, I think. The illiterate oaf on the end.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, the competitive spirit of the rabbit hole detectives might perhaps <laughs> drive all our literary efforts. Who knows?
2: So... That's it for this week. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening. Please do subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. Don't forget you can send us an email if you'd like to, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic for us to fall into in the future. Just write to rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. Don't forget also you can find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show. So... In the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, I'm older than you and must know better. Goodbye, rabbit haulers.
1: Bye, everyone. Goodbye, cat. Bye, everyone. <laughs>